A new year, time for new growth. Grow your education and skills with Herzing University. Our online behavioral health programs fit your schedule and time. From an eight-month diploma program in health and human services to a 36-month bachelor's in psychology. Grow your behavioral health career with us wherever you are in your education. Your future starts now at Herzing University. Visit us online at herzing.edu or text HEALTH to 85109. Online at herzing.edu or text HEALTH to 85109. This is the story of The One. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. You are listening to Over and Back's Basketball Mysteries of the 1970s. Today's mystery is How did the Sonics boom and then bust? First, I want to tell you about a fellow HP Network podcast. You know that Nylon Calculus is the place to go for smart but accessible analysis of all things in the NBA. And now there's a new podcast called Nothing But Nylon. Hosted by Kevin Farragan, it is a place where NBA writers and researchers discuss their ideas and talk hoops and analytics. Check it out at nylonCalculus.com and on the Harbor Paroxysm Podcast Network. With me today is a special guest from um, from ESPN and also a former employee of the uh, Sonics, Kevin Pelton. Welcome to the program. Hey, thanks for having me. So uh, excited to talk to you today about uh, some of uh, some Seattle Sonics history, uh, the uh, the championship teams, uh, the championship team of the uh, of the late seventies, the back to back finals teams in seventy eight and seventy nine against the Bullets, with them winning the second of those matchups. A very young and very talented team with uh, Gus Williams, uh, Dennis Johnson, and Jack Sigma, all extremely complimentary and and young and sort of an ultimate uh, what if team of the time. Um, with kind of a lot of what if teams with the uh, the late seventies Blazers, um, all those teams that could potentially have competed with the uh, the Lakers as well, plus some talented teams that Houston, San Antonio, the Suns, all all, all interesting teams that are of course um, you know once the eighties come along, the Lakers are dominant in the West and no one else really has a chance. But so, so, so talking mm-hmm. about the uh, Sonics. Um, uh, Really interesting how they sort of came out of nowhere in 78 with Williams coming over from from the Warriors, Dennis Johnson having been a bench player, um, and uh, Jack Sigma, a rookie, and then sort of uh, took took the league by storm um, after, uh, you know, a rough start to that season. Well, you know, more than nowhere in some ways when, when you think about the fact that uh, they started that season 5-17 and 17 before Lenny Wilkins returned to the sidelines as head coach. He had been the director of player personnel originally after uh, Russell was left and his assistant Bob Hopkins had taken over as the head coach. So he takes over with the team, you know, basically in last place and then ends up taking them to the finals that year and to the championship the next year. It's hard to think of many kind of similar situations like that with an overnight turnaround in, in NBA history. 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, and um, I, I, Curtis Harris once uh, we were uh, t- talking and said that this Sonics team could easily have been the uh, subject of the breaks of the game because uh, there's just so there's a lot of similarities in terms of um, how this team kind of uh, came to rise out of nowhere. Um, and then sort of this a similar downfall with uh, the dissension between uh, Dennis Johnson and um, Coach Lenny Wilkins, which, which we'll get into. But uh, the, the this was sort of the aftermath of the Bill Russell era. He had been coach and general manager of the team for four seasons and sort of came in as an expected savior for the team, of course, being you know the greatest winner of, of all time and um, hoping that he would bring some magic to the team. And, and while they certainly did improve, uh, it was definitely considered a disappointment, and he was um, paid very highly by um, Sam Schulman, the owner, who was sort of a um, – a little bit of a of a maverick owner at the time, you could say he um, uh, did things sort of challenge the system. He ended up um, breaking the NBA's um, uh, policy of not signing underclassmen after he took Spencer Haywood, who had gone out early and played a season in the ABA, then en- ended up bringing him into the NBA and um, was a guy who was not afraid to be sort of uh, at the forefront, maybe a little bit of a Mark Cuban of his time, you could say. Yeah, I mean, that was the thought that popped in my head uh, when you first started going down this line of thinking. I mean, I guess at that point, there were probably a lot of Mark Cubans when you look at the way ownership was in the 1970s. It, yes. was, it was so, so wide open in many ways. But he was someone who had a, a long lasting effect at taking that Haywood case all the way to the Supreme Court and, you know, opening up not only the path for underclassmen to, to play in the NBA, but in some respects, the NFL as well. Yeah, absolutely. And um of course, a, a player who ends up leaving the team after some conflict with um, Lenny Wilkins in 78 was Slick Watts, who had been a really popular, like, uh, hustling, you know, um, just, just a, a player who had really was like a fan favorite, you know, known for his hustle and and uh, known, of course, for his uh, for his headband as well on his, on his ball dome. Slick Watts, who was traded um, early on in the season to the Jazz in 78 after, you know, after being popular and, and being kind of the probably the main um, most popular player of that time, even sort of um, eclipsing Bill Russell's popularity once the disappointment kind of set in as to where they were as a team. Yeah, which I think was an issue for the two of those guys in terms of their personal relationship is uh, Slick talked about a little bit in the book he did with uh, former Sonics beat writer Frank Hughes talking about his career and his time with the Sonics in particular. Uh, Yeah, and and I think that was a that was a tough one to it was tough to trade him because of the fact that he was so popular. But as good as he'd been, actually led the league in both assists and steals in the same season, which is something I think has only happened a couple of times since then. Uh, still kind of, you know, not fitting Lenny Wilkins' vision for the team. And then ultimately this new backcourt that they were going to build that was going to become one of the best in the NBA. Yeah. Uh, so as you mentioned, uh, the, the the Sonics start out uh, very poorly, 5-17 and 17, um, in 78. Um, one big key change that happens once Wilkins co- comes in as coach as he brings in uh, Dennis Johnson, begins to start him instead of bringing him off the bench. And obviously he, he he thrives in that situation. He's uh you know an incredible defender. He's he's very young, he's very high flying and physical, known for being able to start fast breaks with his steals or blocks as a guard. And that per that pairs perfectly with his backcourt mate uh, Gus Williams, who's incredibly fast, 
able to um, able to um, you finish on the fast break, get up get up ahead and transition. Uh, able to ha- had a lot of um, uh, crafty moves to uh, you know be able to break his way free and, and beat guys off the dribble, uh, that kind of thing. He was a uh, um, he was a two-time All-NBA player uh, during this time. Actually finished uh, first-team All-NBA in 1982 uh, ahead of Magic Johnson, which kind of shows listeners kind of where he was, um, you, you know, where he was considered uh, not quite in 78, but as, you know, as the years went along, he would he would definitely break out in 78 and then would even go further um, on into is one of the elite guards of the early 80s. Yeah, and he was a guy who, in Golden State, you know, they had a, a deep backcourt at that point. It was not long after their championship team, and you know, Gus Williams was playing minutes, but not, I think, doing what he, you know, having the big role that he envisioned himself having, and uh, you know, was able to get away from them as an early free agent, and then land in Seattle. And like you said. Uh, the pairing between Gus and DJ really worked out perfectly because of the fact that neither of those guys were quite true point guards. And then you also, as we're, we'll sure, I'm sure get to, uh, had John Johnson playing a bit of a point forward role in those teams. And all three of those kinda, guys kind of chipping in as part of the playmaking duties, but uh, interchanging a lot of things offensively, you know, at a period where the point guard shooting guard designation wasn't always as uh, defined as it later became in the NBA. Yeah. And then another key piece who was a rookie this season, a Jack Sigma, who was a great shooting big man um, and a seven-time All-Star who uh, also known for his uh, his beautiful blonde locks, including uh, the perm <laughs> later on in his uh, career. Um, what stands out to you about Sigma? And he seems like somebody who um, definitely was a little bit a- ahead of his time in terms of how he was able to be um, he was able able to be a big man, but it showed a lot of range, even so showing some three point range later on in his career. Right, exactly, and uh, you know just the the combination of his footwork in the high post, the uh, the inside out out kind of uh, moves that he could make there, and then the high release point of of shooting his jumper over his head made it essentially unblockable and, and was a big part of what he provided. You know, I, I think a common theme about a lot of these guys, you know, I mentioned Gus Williams was a, a relatively little known reserve in, in Golden State. DJ was the 29th pick of the draft in 76. He was actually the Sonics third pick in that draft. So he kind of came a little bit out of nowhere. Uh, I went and revisited a feature I I did on him before he passed away in conjunction, I think, with the 25th anniversary of the the Sonics at that point. He mentioned that Jerry West and then uh, Bill Russell were the only two executives who knew anything about him in the draft. And then it was basically whichever those teams drafted him first was going to get him. And Sigma was coming out of Illinois Wesleyan, uh, not uh, in NAIA school. So again, not a household name in the draft. They kind of, you know, went went with some obscure guys that ended up panning out quite well. Yeah. And um, a, a holdover from the uh, from the mid-70s teams and actually played his entire career, three, 13 seasons with the Sonics from 71 to 84, was uh, downtown Freddie Brown uh, was uh, a, a very good guard for the team who at this point was about to transition to more of a sixth-man instant offense role off the bench but had a lot of uh, – had incredible range. In fact, he led the NBA in three-point percentage in 1980, which was the first year uh, for the three-pointer. He was ninth in the league in three-pointers made. So a, another – kind of um you know cult favorite but i was really the you know the, the first you know very good player who who spent his career with his entire career with the franchise 
Yep. Uh, another guy who was in some ways ahead of his time in terms of, you know, what the three pointer could have meant to downtown. You know, he's first off a great nickname in terms of it not only rhymes, which everyone loves, but also like is evocative of his game, which was highly dependent on shooting from downtown. Uh, a big time score is a starting shooting guard earlier on in his career. But like you said, you know, transitioning to that different role is kind of an elder statesman and, and a scorer off the bench at this point. And he was the guy that DJ replaced in the starting lineup when Wilkins took over. And uh, some of the other key guys who were um, on the team for, for most of this period, um, Paul Silas, who had uh, was near the end of his career as one of the great uh, rugged rebounders and defenders of his time. He had won two rings with the uh, Celtics in the mid-70s. In fact, was the only NBA player to win three rings in the uh, decade of the 70s. There were four players for the who did in the ABA, all, all with the Pacers, but he was the only one in the NBA to do it. Um, and he came in, he, he was um, part of a trade that also um, included Marvin Webster, who, who would be very key for the 78 team as well, um, and helped sort of re- remake the team after the disappointment of uh, 77, which they had missed the playoffs. Um, as you mentioned, John Johnson, who was sort of the, a, a point forward role, um, he and uh, Fred Brown had been teammates together uh, at Iowa, so they were they were reunited. Um, and he was a two, two-time All-Star early in his career, also a, a good rebounder, and then uh, another guy who spent five seasons with Seattle and later became the general manager, uh, Wally Walker. Yes, uh, a guy who at that point I think they figured would be a bigger part of this team. He had been, I think, the fifth pick in the draft, something like that, by the Blazers where, after he was a star at Virginia and uh, was traded early in his second season, had won the championship actually in Portland, ended up winning championships for both the Northwest teams during what was the high point of Northwest basketball. But I think they traded a first-round pick for him, figured he would be a bigger part of this, and he ended kind of a, a, kind of a bit player off the bench during this championship era. Yes, absolutely. So the uh, the '78 team is, wins 47 games, which is sixth in the league. They're they're sixth in SRS, and a, a, as you mentioned, they finish 42 and 18 once Lenny Wilkins was hired. Sort of the almost the exact opposite of what the Blazers do that year, which they start 50 and 10, and then once Bill Walton is hurt, they end up uh, falling off. Um, and uh, they beat the Lakers in the uh, first round, uh, two games to one. This has uh, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, a very young Adrian Dantley, Jamal Wilkes, and an old Lou Hudson. Then the second round, they um, they upset the Blazers, uh, who had won 58 games. But again, with um, uh, Walton had been hurt basically up until this series and then tried to come back and then was hurt again in game two and would never um, play for the Blazers again. Uh, he, uh, as we mentioned, the team has started 15 and 10 after that championship year, led by Walton and Maurice Lucas and Lionel Hollins. Um, and then they beat the uh, Nuggets, a 48-win team in the Western Conference Finals, four games to two. Um, th- that team led by David Thompson, Dan Issel, and Bobby Jones, having just come out of the ABA a couple uh, seasons before. And then the uh, the finals themselves, uh, they lost to the Bullets, a 44-win team, uh, four games to three. Um, the Bullets were led by a really terrific uh, front line of Elvin Hayes and Wes Unseld, who had uh, you know been there since the early 70s, and Bob Dandridge, who had come along from the uh, uh, from the Bucks to really bolster you know one of the uh, the, you know, the the front line was definitely the strength of the team. The guards were not quite as strong, so very, you know two top 50 players and one excellent uh, underrated player probably in uh, NBA history to make a really terrific front line, even though they were aging. Um, so uh, w- this is this is a the series in which the uh, the Sonics do take it to uh, game 7 um 
and, and but fall to the Bullets in the series. It, it's sort of unusual for obviously for um, a 47 win team and a 44 win team to uh, battle each other in the finals. Although it was a little bit more common in the 70s, there were a lot of teams that uh, there was all, there was a lot of parity in this late 70s time with you know kind of lower than usual win best win totals of the in the season and, and higher than usual worst win totals uh, and also quite a number of uh, playoff upsets. Yeah, I think in particular these three years after the ABA-NBA merger, except for Portland in the first part of the 77-78 season when they were at a different level than anyone else, it was really hard to stand out. It was kind of like the the uh, accumulation, the addition of the talent from the ABA even the, leveled the playing field for everyone in the NBA, and no one really there was no there were no truly great teams during this period, other than like I said, you know Portland with a healthy Walton in '78, but also no no truly bad teams. Uh, just a if you're the kind of person who's upset about the super team in Golden State, you would have loved the uh, late '70s NBA. Yes, well, unfortunately, a lot of people did not. Um, <laughs> no, it did. Yeah, the uh, the the. I, I heard on the Golden Age of Basketball podcast, and I, I couldn't confirm this for sure, but he said that the Sonics and Bolts was apparently the 447th rated show on television uh, that season. So, oh, yeah. um, so, so either way, it was not rated highly. That's for sure. It was definitely a, a, a dark time. The the finals of the. Um, the 78 and 79 finals, which were both lowly rated, featuring the Bullets and the Sonics, ended up leading to two seasons of tape-delayed uh, finals when uh, actually the Lakers and, and the Sixers, big markets, were involved. So it took a while, of course, for things to turn around, but once uh, Magic and Bird got established and Jordan came along, obviously, we I think pretty much everyone listening, listening to this knows the rest. The game four of the finals was played uh, before uh, 39,457 fans at the Kingdome, which is the lo- largest crowd ever to watch a single professional basketball game at the time. Um, game three of the finals had a 35,000 um, crowd, so definitely a, a strong um, strong attendance for the um, uh, for that time. And this is, of course, um, there are a f- there's a, there's a few arenas that uh, a few teams are playing in these huge uh, domes. The the Jazz had played in the uh, Superdome, and and there would be throughout the '80s the you know the uh, Pistons would play in the uh, Silverdome. So this was kind of an era where this was happening at least a little bit, whether they were in the midst of you know getting a different arena or uh, or, or what have you. But um, what stands out to you about uh, this series? It's obviously it's it's a it's a pretty close series. The six of the games are you know within um, you know four or, or one game is eight one of those games is eight points but the others are within you know six or four points and uh, only really one true blowout the uh, bullets in game six so what do you think of um you know this series as a sonics fan beyond of course the the pain of losing in a game seven yeah i mean i think that's really what stands out is the sonics led this series three two as you mentioned get blown out in game six in washington okay we're coming back home 
playing game seven in front of, you know, uh, one of these huge crowds. I believe that one was at the Kingdome as well. And uh, that until this June with, you know, the, the Warriors losing at home to Cleveland in game seven was the, the last time that a home team had lost a game seven of the NBA finals. And of course, the, the famous story of that game is how poorly Dennis Johnson played in it. The guy who you know, everyone thinks of from his Celtics days as uh, as Mr. Clutch uh, was the guy who really struggled in that game shooting. Uh, let's see. When, when did he shoot? Oh, yeah, 14. But, oh, 14. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, basically the worst game you can imagine on the biggest stage imaginable. It's, you know, everyone thinks of John Starks, I think, in 94 is, is that kind of guy to uh, really struggle in the game seven. But it was DJ long before him. Yeah, and he he would later talk about how you know he obviously you know was embarrassed by that performance and you know dedicated himself to try to um, you know be able to return and to uh, and to play well, which he would definitely do in the uh, in the next season. But yeah, that was um, the, the Bullets really kind of did that with a with a pretty balanced um, uh, the. Unseld led the uh, had fifteen and nine, and then everyone else, you know, the main players in that team, Hayes and Dandridge, Tom Henderson, Charles J- Johnson, Mitch Kupchak, all were in double figures. So it was, it was a balanced effort for them. The um, the the Sonics were led by Marvin Webster, who had probably the game of his life with twenty seven and uh, nineteen, and and Sigma twenty one and eleven. But as we mentioned, Johnson struggled, and, and Williams was four of twelve for twelve points. So. Um, a struggle for them, but they would uh, turn things around in '79. They would um, they finished 52 and 30, which was second in the lead, and they were uh, they were sixth in the league in SRS. They uh, they lost Marvin Webster to the Knicks, but as compensation, they added um, uh, Burley power forward Lonnie Shelton, who actually was probably a better complement for uh, Sigma, and actually uh, after an injury, moved him to um, to center, where he probably. You know, I think he he generally played center for the most of the rest of his career, so that probably ended up working out um, better for the Sonics in the long run. Yeah, and this was uh, Shelton was such big compensation essentially that after the Larry O'Brien originally awarded the Sonics that in a first round pick. Uh, a judge came in and ruled that compensation excessive, and I, I believe he took away the, uh, gave them another first round pick uh, as part of this process. Yes, uh, we, don't don't miss the compensation days. I don't think. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> I mean, that would be fun to write about now. Yeah, that, it would certainly keep things interesting. Yeah, I guess so. Yeah, that, that, that would add a whole new dimension to that. That probably make your job a lot harder. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, they had a buy in the first round. They beat the Lakers again in the uh, second round, four games to one. Um, Lakers were a similar team. They had added Norm Nixon um, to that core. And uh, then they beat the Suns in the Western Conference Finals, four games to three. Suns were a 50-win team that year. They were uh, about three seasons removed from having made the NBA Finals in 76. And they still had um, Paul Westfall and Alvin Adams. They had also added Walter Davis and uh, Truck Robinson, who had come from the uh, Jazz. Uh, and... Um, the Sonics had a great start. Uh, they were up. Uh, they were up to nothing after winning both games at home. And in fact, there's an SI article where um, John Johnson says after game two, this is probably their best shot. If they play a better game in this series, I'll be pretty surprised. <laughs> and then uh, after that, the uh, Sonics uh, end up um, uh, shooting miserably. Um, 
Uh, Sigma between games two and five was 14 for 56 during the um, uh, during that stretch. Uh, Williams and Johnson also really struggled from the field and and, and they were down uh, three to two after um, losing at home in uh, game five, but um, were able to turn things around and won uh, narrowly in Phoenix, uh, 106 to 105 in game six and in Seattle, 114 to 110 in game seven. Um I would imagine this is probably a um, a pretty noteworthy series in Sonic's history. Is there anything that stands out to you about it? Yeah, you know, it's weird. This is one that I think kind of has slipped through the cracks historically. It should probably be more notable than it is, given what happened afterwards. And, uh, you know... A, doing the same thing that Washington had done to the Sonics the year before in terms of coming back from a 3-2 deficit. They didn't have to win Game 7 on the road, but did have to win that Game 6 on the road, which was played on Mother's Day in Phoenix. And uh, one of the favorite random stories, I have this book uh, that's from the Sonics 25th anniversary season that has just a bunch of random uh, stories about key games, key th- key events in franchise history. And they note that Paul Westfall's mom sang the national anthem before this oh, game. Nice. <laughs> and then the Sonics win it 106-105, a one-point win in Phoenix where they're all ready to go to the finals and try to avenge 77 for or 76 for them. And instead, it's the Sonics who end up going back to the finals. So they reach the finals and... Um, they end up um you know, there's some excitement at the time with the idea that washington um their 54 win team they were a little bit favored in the uh, in the series and obviously they beat them the year before so there was definitely a chance there but you know as we mentioned washington was definitely an older team and the sonics were a very young team and um and the sonics were able to win the series four games to one uh and one four straight after losing narrowly in um game one in fact the um the the Bullets had a really rough time getting through the uh, playoffs. They had to come back from a 3-1 deficit against the Spurs in the conference finals. They also did, had to come back against the Hawks to, in seven games earlier on in that um, in that playoff. So they, they had a they had a, a tough stretch run, which I you know was tough on them. Although I, again, the uh, the Sonics didn't have it too easy either. So I, I guess both teams were pretty tired. But uh, it was 36 hours after they beat the Spurs where they had to um, they had to play the Sonics in Game One of the finals. But they ended up actually uh, winning that game, although they blew an 18 point lead in the third quarter and uh, it came very close to, to to blowing the game. In fact, there was sort of a a uh, uh, Johnson attempted Dennis Johnson attempted to block uh, a jumper and then the whistles sounded and then uh, Larry Wright the player was awarded two free throws with no time on the clock so a uh, a, a so unusual for uh, a foul to be called in that situation and he made both um, free throws but um, Wilkins said after the game or later would say that you know he they, he felt confident after this game that even though they had lost game one they felt that coming back from 18 points down said a lot about them and that they would end up um winning the series and then um handled things pretty easily um after that they won game two fairly handily um shut down dandridge and hayes quite a bit um game three was in the kingdom with thirty-five thousand fans and they had another pretty easy win. Uh, Gus Williams had 31 points and uh, DJ had 17 with nine rebounds and two blocks. And, uh, and Sigma had 21 and 17 in that game. Uh, game four is probably the, um, the most notable game of this series. Um, it went to, um, it went to double overtime and, um, 
and, and the uh, the Sonics won narrowly, uh, one fourteen to uh, one twelve on a uh, as uh, as DJ blocked a shot at the end to to prevent Washington from uh, being able to tie the game. Yeah, and I mean that was basically the key to the series because they go up three one at that point with uh, you know three chances left to close out the series. And even you know one thing we forgot to mention about the seventy eight finals is that's where if he didn't invent the phrase, Dick Mata at least popularized the phrase. It ain't over till the fat lady sings, referring to their three two deficit that they came back from the year before. But three one was uh, just too much to overcome. Yeah, especially overcoming it again after they'd overcome it in the in the previous series. So. Um, so game five, uh, the Bullets did start off pretty, pretty hot. Uh, in fact, um, uh, Elvin Hayes scored 20 points in the uh, in the first half. Uh, however, the uh, Sonics um, at the end of the third quarter went on a 12-0 run to um, to be down only three. And then um, Freddie Brown hit four or five shots in the final 13 minutes and, and the Sonics won uh, 97 to uh, 93. Uh, DJ was named uh, finals MVP and... Um, he, he, he said that uh, he was just a funny-looking black kid with red hair and freckles. He was just doing what needed to be done and praised his teammates, including uh, Gus Williams, at the uh, end of it. And then uh, I, I hadn't known this until recently, but they actually uh, both celebrated by, uh, by lighting cigars in the, uh, you know, in the Red Arbach tradition. So I thought that was kind of a neat story. Yeah, and uh, another Dick Mata quote. So he, he kind of talked about the Game 7 the previous year, and be- I think this was before Game 5, said, you know, as you get closer and closer, these games get bigger and bigger. Let's put it on Dennis Johnson. Let's just see. And uh, Johnson responds with 21 points in Game 5 and ends up winning Finals MVP. So yes. a, a lot of, uh, you know, e- evening up for the year before. Yes, absolutely. And, and, and Johnson, there's a um, there's a Michael D. McClellan interview at CelticNation.com from 2002, I believe, and uh, talks about how you know the, the first title was the greatest of highs. There's something special about doing it for the first time, and that feeling can never be duplicated, even though the other championships were rewarding in their own ways. And talked about how you know that team was so young and talented at all the makings of a dynasty, and remembered that the talk was all about repeating as a champion. So going into 1980, they you know, um, Johnson, Williams, Sigma, Shelton, and Walker were all 25 or younger. You know, expecting that, that certainly seemed like a team that would um, uh, th- that would be able to do so. But um, 1980 comes along; it doesn't quite work out like that way. Um, of course, Magic Johnson comes into the league, and uh, and and the Lakers become the power team of the West. Although the um, the Sonics are, are they're certainly not bad. 56 and 26, fourth in the league. Uh, and also fourth in SRS, uh, but this is the year where things start to really come to a head between um, Dennis Johnson and uh, and Lenny Wilkins. Uh, just uh, DJ becoming known for his moodiness and sulking, feeling some resentment over his role, and Gus Williams for taking more shots with him. It's talked about in you know in, in the breaks of the game. In fact, there's a chapter dedicated to it, and in um, and it's been mentioned in other publications. Do you know much about you know kind of what the if there was more to it than that or, or kind of what the issues were between him and uh, and Wilkins? 
I, I don't think there was anything more, at least that I've I've heard in uh, you know any of the interviewing or research I've done. I mean, I think it's just kind of a a classic disease of uh, me kind of situation with you know a team that has now won the championship, been to the finals two years in a row, and as Pat Riley has talked about at length and has been quoted from him, you know everyone starts to want a little bit more after that. And I think Dennis Johnson was probably the the biggest symptom of that for the Sonics. Yes, and he did you know and, and Johnson of course would, would be traded to uh, Phoenix uh, after this season and had similar issues in Phoenix and then you know ironically came to the Celtics and then I, I think was you know pretty much known as uh, as the perfect teammate um, you know Larry Bird always complimented him as, as being you know the the best guy to play with and um, so it's sort of ironic for um, and disappointing for Sonics fans that you know if he had been able to um, you know, have that maturity that he would have later in his career there certainly was potential for the uh, the the Sonics to match up very well with the uh, uh, the Lakers, you know, after 1980, because, you know, as we saw in the 84 finals with the way that Dennis Johnson played defense against Magic, he certainly would have um, uh, changed the equation for, you know, their battles with the Lakers, you know, potentially over the next few years. Yeah, I mean, I th- I do think that, you know, just the Lakers, it's not that, that things didn't go well for the Sonics in 79-80. It was actually, you know, they won 56 games. It was the best point differential by far of any of the teams in this run. It was just that kind of the, the whole landscape of the league changed to some extent with the arrival of Magic. And, you know, after this era of parity, it starts getting back to the point where it's more of a star-dominated league. Because that's, you know, a thing we haven't talked about, and maybe this will come up more in terms of just the legacy of the team of this era, is that... Notably, you know, DJ ended up making the Hall of Fame posthumously, but this was for a long period of time the only championship team in decades that had won, uh, you know, won a championship without a Hall of Famer and certainly still without that inner circle superstar that all of a sudden the Lakers had two of those. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And um uh, yeah, and, and they obviously they had very good players, and they and you know and you could definitely make a pretty strong case for Jack Sikkim to make the Hall of Fame. Um, that does seem a bit of an oversight, but but he, but even so, he's certainly not. You know, he's more of the borderline level of Hall of Famer, not like a you know like a certainly not the level of Magic and and Kareem for sure. Um, so yeah, as you mentioned, yeah, fifty six wins. Uh, this they had added a third Johnson to the team. Uh, Vinny Johnson had a very small role on this team later of um, of Pistons fame, microwave off the bench fame. So they had John Johnson, Dennis Johnson, and Vinny Johnson. They all pretty much were known by their initials to uh, to avoid confusion. Yeah, and Vinny Johnson was drafted with that that compensatory pick I mentioned earlier that they had gotten from the Knicks as part of the Marvin Webster. Uh, deal and then ah. the Sonics ended up having to go up their 81 first round pick to even it up yes yeah um so they they beat the Blazers in the first round uh the Blazers this is the the, the team that's covered in breaks up the game that's it's followed along by David Halberstam in that classic book uh, Billy Ray Bates and Kermit Washington the probably the best known players from that uh, team then they had another classic series in the second round against the uh, Milwaukee Bucks. This was the last year that the Bucks were in the Western Conference. They would they was moved to the East once um, realignment uh, happened. Once the uh, the Mavericks joined the uh, league in '81, and um, uh, Marcus Johnson, Bob Lanier, Sidney Moncrief, or young Sidney Moncrief are the, uh, the the key players on this team. I think Lanier had been traded in midseason to the uh, Bucks and. Um, and this series uh, went all seven games. Six of them were decided by five points or less. Four of them were won by the road team, and there were two overtimes in the series. And there's a incredible game-winning three by Dennis Johnson in the first game of the series. The uh, 
The Sonics nearly threw the game uh, away, but after a, a quick made basket by the Bucks, uh, Dennis, given the ball inbounded, he um, he dribbled uh, down the court and then took an off balance uh, three pointer to uh, to win the game. This was. This is, of course, the first season of the three-pointer, so the idea of having a game-winning three-pointer in this situation is still a uh, a pretty new concept for the league. Yeah, it's certainly an exciting play, although uh, not every, not everyone was so excited about it. Bob Lanier described it as a, a lucky shot and determined that, uh, based on the fact that they were so lucky to win, that the, the Bucks were going to win the series. Ah, well, he was not correct in that. Uh, <laughs> he was not. Yes. <laughs> um... So yes, they so they are able to the the, the Sonics. And there's another time where they were down three two in the series actually, and then they're able to uh, win eighty six eighty five in Milwaukee, and then uh, in Game Six and then Game Seven win ninety eight ninety four uh, in Seattle. So uh, it's interesting how very a lot of very close margins with the uh, with, with the Sonics. Yeah, I mean, which I think is befitting, you know. The, the fact that don't have a lot of star talent and it was just basically always a grind for them uh, yes. throughout these this era yeah and uh then they lost to the lakers in the western conference finals um even though it was four games to one um they it, it was a fairly close series they actually won game one in la by one point and then the lakers won the next four but uh you know fairly close margins there so certainly a even though you know, the sonics lost this uh, season they certainly um you know were competitive with the lakers during this um, season so Next season is where things start take a take a big downturn. Um, Dennis Johnson in the offseason is traded for Paul Westfall. And um, on after he left the team, um, Lenny Wilkins called Dennis Johnson a cancer and said that um, you said that um, you can't get rid of the body, but you can cut out the cancer. And he said they're better off eliminating him rather than dealing with him. And um, and then they were happy to get uh, Paul Westfall in the trade, who w- w- was still a very effective player, even though he was getting close to 30 at that point. Um, but unfortunately for the Sonics, uh, Westfall missed m- most of the season. I think played like 37 games and was fairly ineffective when he did play while uh DJ was all NBA first team for a 57 win team, although that team was didn't end up being upset in the playoffs. Yeah, he had a, a series of stress fractures in his right foot, Westfall, that sidelined him that season. And, uh, yeah, they, they did not get what they were expecting to get out of him. And then the other key thing is um, Gus Williams held out for the season, which um, he had been asking, I believe, for $800,000 and the um, – uh, the Sonics offered him $2.5 million for five, for five years. So $500,000 a, a season. And, um, there's, there's an article about from February of 81 from SI talking about how, um, you know, Sigma's kind of the, the one guy who's left Paul, Paul Silas had retired. Um, Lonnie Shelton missed most of the, actually, I think all the season with injuries. So, uh, he's kind of the one, you know, stalwart who's still sticking around and, even though he was, he, he had a very good. Uh, he was leading he had his career highs at the time in in scoring and rebounding. He was. He said he, he missed Williams. He said, "All I know that in the old days when I got a rebound and turn, there was always something there. Now there's often no one. I I could count the number of fast breaks and easy baskets we've had on one hand. So, um, I I can't really think of another situation where a player of that caliber held out for an entire season and and then would come back to the team." 
Yeah, it's pretty unthinkable that even then that it would have happened. But uh, yeah, he, he, as you said, he was asking for 800000 a year, which he eventually got in the summer of 81 after the season. And at that point, Sam Shulman said, you know, uh, uh, if I had known then what I know now, I, I would have just signed him last year. The market is different now, and I didn't foresee the conditions we have today. Yeah, and obviously this was going to be a time in which player salaries would rise, you know, considerably. Magic Johnson would sign that famous um, twenty-year contract for a million dollars a year, and then that, and then that, in a few years, would be a, um, you know, would 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 be a laughable amount of money. So, um, and also it was during the time when contracts were often renegotiated, which kind of created situations where a player could, you know, sulk and be angry and then, you know, would eventually the team would kind of might cave in and um, and pay him more money. And, and there was, you know, there's certainly in the NBA today, there is tension between players, you know, with with disparate salaries. But um, at now, you know, you're pretty much locked into the amount of money that you're going to make while your contract is, um, you know, as long as you're going to play where back then there was much more um, there was much more chance for these problems, I think, to kind of fester because the you know, ability to sort of change your contract was was there, which I, I think was sort of derailed some of some of these teams. Um, you, know, you know, it caused a lot of difficulties, you know, kind of in the 70s and in the 80s and kind of led to obviously some changes in the system. Yeah, I mean, I think all, you know, everything that's happened with the salary cap over the last few decades is kind of a response to trying to clean up some of the issues. So, you know, whether it's rookie holdouts that then you have the rookie scale and things like that, sort of it's it's a different it's an entirely different uh, climate in terms of the salary cap now than it was then. And, and that's a big reason why is to, to try to avoid these kind of kind of things. Yeah. So they're so once they have Williams back, they're still a strong team in eighty one eighty two. They're fifty fifty two wins, fifth in the league, and a fifth in the league in SRS as well. So you know, pretty stout team there. Um, uh, Bill Hanslick and James Donaldson have uh, are, are sort of emerged as contributors to this team. John Johnson only played fourteen games, and this was his final season. Um, and, uh, and and Williams would talk about how he, you know, it wasn't just about money for him. It was only part of the reason he said that he had certain principles as a man and they weren't being met. Uh, the contract adjustment was part of it, sure, but there were other things I also had to clear my mind. And he talked about how he was able to stay in shape by playing a lot of uh, playground basketball and was sort of actually, um, he, he was surprised at the idea that, you know, that anyone would think that he wouldn't, you know, wouldn't come back. It just is fine. And, and he did come back. He was just as good of a player and um, led them to the second round. The um, They beat the Rockets in the first round, two games to one. The Rockets really had Moses Malone, but not a whole lot of else. Elvin Hayes and Calvin Murphy won the last legs there. And then the uh, in the second round to the Spurs, they lost four games to one. The Spurs led by George Gervin and Mike Mitchell. Uh, even though it was one-sided to a degree, most of the games were competitive as per usual with the Sonics. And then 82-83 was kind of the last gasp of them, you know, really being a, a a pretty good team. They dropped a bit. They were 48 wins, 8th in the league, and 7th in the league in SRS. Um, they added David Thompson that year. That was his last full season. He would have play a partial season um, the next year. But he had come over from Denver, and he had obviously been one of the great talent uh, shooting guards of all time. Um at, at, yeah, at the time and unfortunately uh had drug issues that led, led to a decline but he his numbers at least were pretty productive you know 16 3 and 3 on a pretty good shooting percentage adding to you know the the William Shelton uh, Sigma core 
Um, Freddie Brown still hanging out of the team would play one more season after this, but they lost to the Blazers 2-0 in the first round um, with uh, you know Paxson, uh, Michael Th- Jim Paxson, Michael Thompson, Calvin Natt as the uh, key guys there. La- last season for them pre-Clyde uh, Drexler where they would transition to that era of the team. So, um so that's basically it for for that team. Um, I don't know. Overall, um, something that's sort of interesting about where you know Sonics fans are right now, unfortunately, with not having a team, but there's a large constituency of fans who are invested in the team's history because there's nothing going on now. So, you know, if you're a Sonics fan, really looking back at the history is the only way you can kind of still keep that connection with the team. Yeah. I mean, I think in some ways, you know, the Sonics are more popular now than the last couple of years before they moved because, you know, besides the whole ongoing, you know, will will they or won't they, uh, the anger with ownership and everything like that, you know, now, now the Sonics can't screw anything up. They're just they're just there in perpetuity in history, and uh, you know that's that's I think really what is remembered. Now I would say, you know, and this may be a function of my own age, that it's probably more related to the '90s teams and the Kemp and Payton era than it is to the late '70s teams. I mean, obviously for people of a different generation, I'm sure that uh, that that's more you know what they think of with the Sonics. But the other element is, you know, it's interesting. I I don't feel like people around here really play the what if game very much i mean probably people within the team do but because of the fact that they did win a championship that set them apart from every seattle team that came afterwards uh at least on the men's professional side until the seahawks in in 2013 or to those what i i think that's 2013 i should probably know that off the top of my head <laughs> super bowl 48 that's okay. to say. That's all right. Uh, so yeah, so the fact that there was all these all these other what ifs in seattle sports history the Peyton Kemp years, you know, the Mariners when they had multiple Hall of Famers and Griffey and A-Rod and Randy Johnson and maybe someday Edgar Martinez and, you know, couldn't even get to the World Series. All of that kind of to just win one championship is unimaginable success for the city of Seattle, not like what more could have been. Yeah, and, and that's, and that's you know, a, a, a good point. I mean, when you're a city that doesn't have like this, it doesn't have like a huge history of sports success. This, you know, uh, Seattle doesn't that you you do have a take what you can get. Um, you know, um, certain certain element of that I would imagine. And also, as you mentioned, there isn't like that transcendent player that played for the Sonics that um, you know you know. Um, Kemp and Peyton, where you Peyton certainly was, you know, a, a better player than anybody on this uh, Sonics team, and, and and Kemp was just such an exciting player to watch, and, and obviously they were playing during a, a more popular time in the NBA's history. Um, but I, I, I guess without like having that superstar to kind of play during this time, that really super duper star. Um, there is maybe a little bit less attraction to um, explore this team. Although, like I said, the it is I, I, there is some nice Sonics history being written on the um, uh, you know on the internet. Having that constituency uh, keep that that spirit alive of the team is a is a nice thing to have. Uh, while while hopefully waiting for a uh, a new team to uh, come along and hopefully in a few years. Yes, and to hopefully reclaim the history, which is now with Oklahoma City, where you know Thunder fans don't really have any connection to the '79 championship. Sure. Uh, the the organization hasn't really made any any point of it, but it's this weird in limbo thing where officially the history belongs to the Oklahoma City organization at this point. Yeah, yeah. So, um, 
Well, Kevin, thank you so much for joining me. Really uh, appreciate you uh, taking time to uh, to discuss this team with me. Um, is there anything you'd like to uh, anything else to like, talk about, or anything you want to uh, share with the listeners? Well, I should plug. You mentioned Jack Sigma for the Hall of Fame last year. I, I made the case for that around the time that uh, the Hall of Fame inductions were taking place. Uh, he's he's number one in the Basketball Reference Hall of Fame probability among guys who are eligible and haven't been voted in, and you know right up there in all the other advanced stats. And yet somehow he has not even been a finalist, isn't even in consideration at this point, which uh, is something I would definitely like to see change. So if people want to uh, to search for that, I can may, maybe tweet it out after you post the link or uh, then also otherwise just google jack sigma hall of fame uh espn probably yes. will bring it up yes we'll we'll, we'll make sure we, we put a, a a link to it in the show notes as well so oh good call um so uh thanks everyone for uh, checking us out uh, you can find us at harborparoxysm.com and you can find us uh, find us on uh, iTunes and Stitcher. Please leave a rating and review if you enjoy the podcast. And we're going to continue our uh, Basketball Mysteries of the 1970s series throughout the offseason. So if you're enjoying the ex- episodes, please uh, let us know. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter at Over and Back NBA. So thanks for listening. And until next time, goodbye. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.